Welcome to the latest episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast series, sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. I'm your host, Anna K. Rowe, and I'm an Assistant Director of Career and Employer Engagement at Ohio University and a visiting scholar at the Proctor Institute. And today I'm joined by our guest, Dr. Haley Haywood. Dr. Haley Haywood is an equity-centered solutionist, coach, and consultant. She's the founder of Elevating Access, a boutique capacity building firm that helps universities and mission-driven employers build equitable pathways to soul-fulfilling work, easing the college-to-career transition for diverse professionals. Elevating Access goes beyond training models, offering holistic equity-centered organizational change management through career coaching, workshops, and implementation support. Dr. Haywood has over a decade of experience working with universities and nonprofits, holding leadership roles ranging from director of multicultural and first-generation student support to assistant provost for organizational learning. She has coached hundreds of professionals, administrators, and students, drawing from her interdisciplinary background in counseling, leadership education, organizational change, and equity. Dr. Haywood's experience is informed by content expertise obtained through a master's in counseling and personal services from the University of Maryland College Park and a doctorate in organizational change and leadership through the University of Southern California, where she studied the college to career transitions of first generation college graduates of color. Today, we're going to be having a candid and important conversation about equity and identity in career design the relationship between DEI and career development. Now, I work in career development, and Dr. Haywood, I know you have experience, extensive experience in student affairs, in career services, and leadership. And frankly, this is a topic that we do not talk about enough, and often we don't feel very equipped to explore. So in light of the Supreme Court rulings, the more recent one regarding affirmative action, the ongoing advocacy around critical policy issues regarding the Crown Act, to calls for greater inclusion and belonging in the workplace and equitable wages. I'm so glad that we get to unpack some of these issues today. So I'm so happy to have you and I look forward to, to addressing these questions today. Yes, thank you so much for the warm welcome and for the invitation to join you and all the listeners today. Thank you. So Dr. Haywood, our first question for today, what role does identity play in the journey from college to career or the workforce development pipeline? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and such an important and, and broad one. So I'll try to be intentional with my remarks. Um, I think first, for those who may be less familiar, um, I want to kind of crystallize what we mean when we say identity. So in this context, at least from my perspective, I'm talking about social identities, which we hold based on a, a matrix of different levels of power and privilege that exists within the context of the world that we live in. So these are socially imposed identities that have very real impacts in our personal lives. Um, and I subscribe to critical frameworks like critical race theory, which asserts that racism is an enduring, pervasive aspect of our lives. So in doing so, that means that we are acknowledging and embracing this notion that race and other intersecting identities like gender, sexuality, class, ability status, citizenship are always relevant, even if they're not top of mind in the moment. 
So I just want to lay that foundation because identity is never not relevant, at least from my perspective. Um, so when we think about the college to career transition, sometimes um, I think we forget about the lives that our students live even before they enter into our, our campus communities. So even like at the pre-college level, race, for instance, has influenced access to housing, which then impacts where our students live and what schools they have access to, which impacts the curriculum that they're exposed to, right? We're seeing now in Florida that certain, and, and not just Florida, but many states now, unfortunately, that there are really critical books that are being banned from the curriculum. Um, race impacts students' experiences in the classroom and the college advising that they receive. I know several high achieving professionals of color who recall instances where in high school they were told um, that they weren't equipped to go to a, a prestigious university, even though some of them have doctorates now, right? So um, it, it's sort of from birth a relevant factor in this trajectory that then influences our careers. Um, and now of course we have structural barriers like the Supreme mm -hmm. Court decision to end affirmative action and loan forgiveness, which has disproportionate impacts on black and brown communities in particular. Um, and that's just the pre-college, right? So the, once right. students get to our campuses, studies have well documented the pervasive racism that exists, especially at predominantly white institutions, um, which impacts students on multiple levels, right? Whether it's the relationships they have on campus, um, the, the cognitive impact on how they um, start to see their self-efficacy and ability to be successful in the environment, their sense of belonging, as well as their academic and professional development access, right? So yes. um, through both my research and practice, I've seen how, you know, discouraging interactions with faculty, for instance, can completely shape students' academic trajectories. And this is especially prevalent in STEM fields, right, which tend to rely on pre-college preparation of like key foundational concepts and rely heavily on standardized tests, which we know can sometimes disadvantage um, Black, Indigenous, and Latine communities, right? So all of these things impact career development. Um, and I know since we wanted to hone in on career development, I have a few examples um, mm -hmm. specifically uh, around how this impacts the career development piece that students have access to. Thank you so much for diving into that. And you have raised so many points about just how the system is designed pre and during and post college. And I think it's so important that you were able to lay that great foundation. Thank you so much. Our next question um, that we're going to dive into explores some of those counter narratives. So what are some of the counter narratives that emerge when exploring the college to career transition of diverse professionals, professionals from diverse backgrounds, identities, lived experiences? Yeah, so um, I conducted two-hour interviews with first-generation college graduates of color, um, particularly those who identified as Black, Latinx, or biracial. Um, the biracial participants identified as both Black and white. Um, and all of them had between three to 10 years of full-time work experience. And I think before we, we get into some of their themes, it's also important to acknowledge that the dominant narrative about college in general is that it impacts, um, it creates social mobility, right? It allows access to higher paying um, job opportunities, uh, but those narratives often don't account for uh, disaggregated data. We're often not looking at 
those who are employed part-time. And there's also nationally a very high um, rate of lack of knowledge um, in terms of like the response rate. So we, we have information on about 55% of the students who end up graduating from college in this country, which is a huge gap in knowledge. Um, and so what I was interested in doing is, is studying the stories of those don't, that don't often get touted on our college websites when we talk about our students' postgraduate experiences. So um, as we know, our students often, um, particularly those who are first generation, low income, students of color, are navigating different levels of barriers that can then create a level of underemployment. And underemployment means that um, folks are in roles that don't align with the responsibility level or the salary le level that their credentials could allow for. So that's another issue of access, which then um, you know deepens financial disparities across both race and class. So one theme that emerged in my, the interviews that I did um, was the relativity of money. So when your parents earn $30,000, for example, you might think that $30, $35,000 is an amazing offer and you feel like you're rich, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but, and no one I interviewed negotiated the salary of their first jobs, right? So like mm -hmm. multiple people actually use the exact phrase, I was just happy to have a job, right? Yeah. So like we've been socialized, not only to not have that insider curriculum to know what salaries are possible given the degrees and the credentials that we've earned, but also to be socialized to just be happy with what we can get. Right. And so it takes not only content knowledge, but also a lot of mindset work to help folks build the, the confidence to work through the imposter syndromes, to know their value um, and to be able to advocate for themselves in the workplace. Thank you. Wow, that is so powerful. And it, you brought up so many good points because I was speaking with a coach the other day and she mentioned um, gratitude guilt. And um, I think many first generation individuals and when you enter the workforce and your point about many times earning more than their parents earned after working for several years, they're, they're just grateful in many instances to have a job and don't feel empowered to negotiate. And also we have to own the fact that there's a lot of fear tied to salary negotiation right. and scare tactics and not knowing and feeling empowered into how to negotiate well and not wanting the offer to be rescinded. So there's so much to unpack there. And we always love to talk about generational wealth and legacy and all of those things, but not going beyond the surface to unpack what these things really mean for different individuals and different communities. And the same way we talk about, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's there's so much hidden curriculum associated with that, right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of students that I talk to um, don't even know that there's access to full-time jobs with benefits, right? So like, when are we educating students the difference between a job and a career and like, what are benefits and what can you have access to? Like, there's just so much that goes, um, we assume that folks have inherited this knowledge. So we're not intentionally building it into the curriculum on our campuses, but that creates a lot of equity gaps. Good, thank you. And I'm so glad you bring that up. And I know further into this podcast, we're gonna talk about some of those practical examples that institutions and career professionals should be sharing and those conversations we should be having because that self-advocacy piece is so important. And when we're talking about folks who are at a higher um, propensity to have imposter phenomenon or syndrome, we're talking about having to make sure they're armed with these tools and resources because they're already um, those things that are stacked against them and not feeling empowered 
and not feeling that they have that right to speak up and that their credentials can open doors to new pathways. Thank you. Next question we're going to address is, what are some of the main barriers inhibiting access? I think we this segues nicely. What are some of the main barriers inhibiting access to equitable work experiences for diverse professionals of color? And what is the impact of some of these barriers? Yeah, so one piece um, we didn't talk as much about is, is once folks are in the job, what are their experiences within the workplace? Um, and another striking theme that came through the conversations that I had is just the workplace abuse that a lot of Black, biracial, and Latina professionals experience, even in their first jobs. Um, and that that impacts mental health. Um, it impacts folks' ability to find a sense of belonging. But also, there are some tangible impacts in terms of discrimination for workplace advancement and opportunities to get promotions or to access stretch assignments that allow us to build new skills, right? There's a privilege in being seen as having potential. And oftentimes there is like racial barriers to people of color being seen as having potential. You have to already demonstrate the skills to be given those opportunities, right? So um, whether it was folks shared experiences like gaslighting, um, experiences with workplace harassment, Many of the the Black women in particular that I spoke with talked about holding multiple roles. So it was like they were performing multiple people's jobs, um, but only being compensated, of course, for that one job. Mm -hmm. um, One person even shared an example of how she tried to advocate for herself, saying, you know, demonstrating all the work that she had been doing. And she was told that she was too valuable to promote which is super counterintuitive, right? Right. (laughs) Um, That's not an experience that is commonly told to white men, right? So there's some racialized and gendered experiences there that prevent folks from not only accessing opportunities for holistic growth and professional development, but there's financial impacts to that too, right? Um, Then when you think about compensation, you know, we talked a little bit about salary, but from the benefits piece, I think that's that's another aspect that's often overlooked in terms of what type of access to insurance folks have. Like, can folks get gender affirming, affirming care if they identify as trans or non-binary? Um, can, can professionals of color get access to racially inclusive therapy where, you know, they don't have to explain to their therapist what racism is and educate their therapist, right? They can get validation and get that guidance and reflection coming from an informed perspective. Um, Many of the Latina women I spoke with also were financial contributors to their parents, right? But their parents are not seen as dependents because the way we define families in the United States doesn't account for extended family being part of your immediate household, right? So like this woman had to pay for a private insurance for her mother who she supported financially because she wasn't included as a dependent um, in the insurance that was provided by the company, right? So there's just so many layers of barriers from the everyday experiences to those structural experiences like advancement opportunities, mentorship opportunities. And then of course, like we were just, I was just discussing um, benefits. Good, thank you. And that caregiving piece, um, that resonated because, you know, we hear stories and anecdotes and read articles of individuals who are supporting families and relatives and aging parents. And I don't think the caregiving piece and how we define family in the United States in such a limited context really serves individuals. And when we talk about the pay inequity, 
seeing what folks have to do on that limited salary that they get, it's it's mind blowing. Um, the expectations in our economy that we all know what those realities are. Um, to follow up on that question, like how how does social capital and things like that come into play? I think you may have touched on this. Things like you know, I was listening to Dr. Tierney Bates the other day. And he likes to talk about things like um, relationship currency and networking and access to networks. And I think you may have touched on this. And another point that he always um, in our conversations talks about is fit and dismantling that. Mm -hmm. Not sure if it's going to come up in their questions later on. But when we talk about barriers, these are some of the, the things that we may want to also talk about briefly. Absolutely. Barriers exist on every level. So there's the internalized levels of discrimination based on um, the ideologies that people hold. So that relates to your point around families. And we have these tendencies to center Eurocentric frameworks on what family looks like and, and what it feels like. And then to your point around fit, those same frameworks then disadvantage folks who don't fit that Eurocentric mold of what quote unquote professionalism looks like, right? So you talked about the Crown Act, whose hair is deemed professional and unprofessional, right? There's racialized components to that. So there are a lot of internalized ideologies that folks, if they really want to take equity seriously, really need to commit to doing sustainable, long-term and intensive coaching work to unlearn some of those really problematic frameworks that we use just as our default as we're moving through society. And it's not only, you know, racism, Beverly Tatum talks about racism as smog, right? So it's not only white people who have internalized these um, ideologies, oftentimes even as people of color, we're breathing in the smog too. And so that's where things like imposter syndrome comes into play or like horizontal racism where we're um, stereotyping and, and engaging in practices like colorism and anti-blackness, right? So it's it's work that we all really need to do if we wanna build an equitably inclusive community. Absolutely, you said it perfectly. And FIT is just such an important, and even in the work we do in career services, when you know folks may not say the word FIT, but they mean it without saying the word. Right. And it's really when we talk about culture and you know if you've served in a search committee, you realize and you're able to sometimes see the bias, feel it. And, and we're really asking folks to, we want people who are like us, who their group think is something that we, we kind of latch on to. And you know, we're asking individuals with all these different identities to fit into an organization, to fit into the culture. Um, and as many articles and research states, these cultures and systems were not made with these individuals in mind. Similarly, in higher ed, we, you know, we're th trying to excel and thrive within a system and a model that was never designed for many of us to be included. So essentially... To exclude us. <laughs> exactly. Essentially, the rules got changed when we entered the game. And if you want to look at it another way, rules were introduced when many of us, when we entered the game because there were many rules to begin with, but we had they had to create rules and structure. So a lot of these systems are rooted in historical exclusion and it seeps into the professional world. It's somewhat normalized in corporate America, in many of these spaces and, institution, and individuals coming into organizations and the workplace being completely unaware of what these spaces look like, they're not going to feel like they belong and they're not going to, they're going to leave. So they're going to get hired and they're going to make somebody's diversity quota. Um, and they're going to be on somebody's website for a short while, but will, is that retention piece there? And many companies really don't, aren't mindful of retention. 
they're not particularly concerned about retention. And it's so important that we are looking big picture and asking these, these tough questions. Thank you. Our next question um, explores how can our universities learn from students' experiences to better meet their needs? Yeah, I think part of it is, is relationship building. So one of the critiques that I've heard throughout you know, my 14 years working in higher education, and oftentimes it does center um, career advisors and academic advisors, is that the support often feels transactional as opposed to transformational, right? We need to move away from just focusing on like the nuts and bolts, the checkbox type of advising and really check in with folks as humans and understand our students' stories. I think that's a really key part of being able to learn about our students' experiences is really building, being in relationship and building that trust and that rapport. And to be honest, I mean, with racial differences, it does require, especially for our white colleagues, does require a lot of additional effort to build that trust. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we want students to kind of trust us on our own terms, but recognizing that students have had very different encounters depending on where they've grown up in the United States, depending on, you know, their class status, who they've had access to, who they've grown up around. They may, even just by virtue of seeing an office that is, is fully populated with white professionals, they may already feel hesitant to even utilize that service, right? So it takes a lot of intentional outreach. Um, You know, one of the, I think the fallacies of our design of resources, and this is something that I work often when I do consulting, is this assumption that students need to come to us, right? There's a lot of implicit bias in expecting that students will, one, know that the office exists, two, understand what it's for, Three, understand why it's relevant to them and and get that urgency to be feeling the need to utilize the office in that moment, right? That's why we often see this trend where seniors are coming into the career office for the first time because no one ever gave them that access to the hidden curriculum to understand why actually even your first year is not too soon to be thinking about your career development. And we want to encourage that, right? But there's all these different barriers to students being able to access the resources. Um, And so I think in terms of better understanding and meeting our students' needs, we need to look at the design of resources and we need to be out there where our students are, right? So as an example, um, instead of expecting our students to come to us, can we do group identity conscious career coaching by partnering with the Black Student Union, for example, um, or working with our bridge programs and multicultural leaders to redesign um, some of the programming in that space to center some of the career programs. I mean, ideally for me, we would be building this into the curriculum because I think that's the most accessible way um, because most of our students studies have found are driven to come to university to get a job. So why is career development optional, right? Who is that model serving and who's it no longer serving? I think these are really important questions we need to ask ourselves. Absolutely. And I love the point you made about going into their spaces, because the truth is there are certain multicultural spaces. When we talk about thriving and belonging, there's so many studies that talk about the importance of having these affinity based spaces. And sometimes we are in one section hoping that they'll come over to our section. And I don't think we're meeting each other halfway effectively. And what we're doing 
isn't always working. So we do have to be creative and understand to meet students where they are, to be in their spaces so that career development and career design does not seem like this abstract idea, but it's woven into the fabric of so much of what they already have to do and Absolutely. into their environment, into their student organizations. So it's not something they have to pursue on their own, but we as, our, as administrators and leaders demonstrate that we value this and that this is important and that this is part of that wraparound service that we, 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 we share in orientation that we provide. You know, We say that we're gonna provide these services so they can't be, we'll serve the students if they come to us. It's we're going to where they are and we're finding unique and creative and innovative ways to, to better serve them. Right. And I think another really untapped piece of access to data is our alumni, right? I've heard so yes. many colleagues say, oh, well, we don't have access. It's hard to track them down, but we don't seem to have that challenge when we're asking them for money, right? So we, we somehow we find their information when we ask them to give to the university. Um, but imagine a model where students first calls from the university after graduation, instead of asking them to donate, is asking them, how are you doing? How can we support yeah. you? You know, what are the aspects of your college career education that were really helpful in getting you to where you are? What do you still need help with? And then using that insight to redesign and reverse engineer the experiences that we're providing students. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I love that. I love that. You're right. We do tap our alumni and we do find them when it comes to making those contributions, with our, which our institutions do need equally also valuable, but also those experiences are enriching and that information and that data is so important to help us to improve the experience for current students. And alumni are typically more very willing to share those experiences. It can be really telling. So I, I really do appreciate that. And a lot of what you talked about reminds me of some of those stages of the appreciative advising model that some folks may be familiar with. And it's not just from an advising lens, but even at Ohio University, we, um, we use the appreciative advising model even in career coaching. Talks about we're very student-centered and human-centered. And if you're having, if your world is falling apart and you're in coming to the office for career coaching, how successful is that engagement gonna be? If you feel like your world is falling apart, you're having trouble adjusting, you're having roommate issues, you're having a mental health um, crisis, how impactful is my career coaching appointment going to be if I'm not helpful or acknowledge those human-centered needs that you have? Right. Which is one of those things that we talk about in appreciative advising, disarming, truly getting to know students and connecting with them on that level because that opens so many doors. So I'm really glad that you connected that point, you made it so clear, the importance of building those connections. Absolutely. Our students at the end of the day want to be seen. Yeah, absolutely. Seen, validated, and they're more receptive to support from someone who they think um, is really invested in their development, not just their academic development, but sees them as a person and invested in their development. We may not all be equipped to serve students in some of the ways that they need, but this is why we're an institution where we can tap individuals who are trained, we can connect, we can refer. That's a big part of career support, career design, is using our network and connecting our students to individuals who can help them. Absolutely. And so many people don't know what questions to ask. So if we can be proactive and build those relationships, we can help guide the students to the questions they may have that they may not even realize that they have. Absolutely. 
because in preparing our students for the reality of the workforce, we, we have to just be mindful of not just the realities that they will face when they graduate, but what are they facing right now? You know, we're always trying to get people to the finish line, but not realizing that they're on a journey and what are their immediate needs. So we're, it's nothing wrong with being forward thinking and planning for the future, but also good to be mindful of the current needs and needs and experiences of our students, which is why it's so important when we do these campus surveys and we talk about sense of belonging to really take that data seriously and to do something with it um, because students are experiencing the institution right now. So when, when they graduate, like we shouldn't just be trying to get them through the door, but what's that experience like right now? That's also a part of career design. Absolutely. And even the piece around preparing them for the future, I would argue probably that most universities are not doing a great job from an identity conscious lens of preparing students for the experiences that I articulated earlier, right? Like that gaslighting. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with compassion fatigue if you're going into working with communities who have trauma that you've experienced yourself, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do you identify the salary to ask equates a, a sustainable salary, right? So how do we make sure that we're using an identity conscious lens when we're having those conversations around? To your point, we don't want to use fit, but oftentimes, even when we talk to students about identifying that aligned um, workplace that is going to align with their needs. Yeah, absolutely. So true. Thank you. And that segues into our final question today. Uh, what are some of the opportunities that we can take to create more access to equitable, gainful employment for our students, for professionals? What are some of those opportunities? Yeah, I would need like a whole podcast episode to talk about <laughs> right. all the different ways that we can be better. But one, one way to kind of encapsulate or summarize some of the different ways we can do that is um, there, a model that I created through my research is called the six priorities of equity progress. Um, and so those six P's are looking at the perspectives that we center when designing resources, advising or curriculum. It's kind of going along with this theme that we've been discussing throughout this episode around identity consciousness. Um, we really do need to center the perspectives of our underrepresented students when we're designing all of our resources, not just mm -hmm. those intentional outreach opportunities with the multicultural center or collaborations with student organizations, but everything needs to be designed with an identity conscious lens, um, including how we hire and support our personnel. Um, so that's the second P. So hiring a team of people who reflect our students, who have the skills to provide that um, holistic, transformative, identity conscious support. Um, do we have staff that understands immigration law? I know that's an area that you looked at in your research, right? Like, do we have staff yes. that knows around employment barriers and how they may be dis different for DACA students versus undocumented students versus international students, mm -hmm. right? Like, we need to hire and, and build the capacity of our our staff to be able to support folks in navigating racial dynamics at work, in identifying LGBTQ inclusive workplaces, right? So that personnel is the second P. Um, and then looking at our, our practices and policies. So practices, again, going back to this notion of do we expect students to come to us or do we go to them? What does engagement look like? What is on that checklist of advising um, milestones that we want students to reach? Are we designing programs with the acknowledgement that the average first generation student in the United States works an average of 20 hours a week? 
So how do we design programs in a way that accounts for that, right? Um, mm -hmm. Making things digestible, um, mobile access, right? Are there podcasts? Are there YouTube videos, TikTok videos, figuring out ways to reach our students where they are? Um, policies and, and how they may be inadvertently disadvantaging certain groups um, without realizing that, you know, some of the restrictions that we put in place actually are preventing our students from accessing our services or resources. Um, and then lastly, thinking about how we assess and monitor progress. So really thinking differently about the metrics we use to identify our career outcomes. For example, I haven't seen very many institutions that look at postgraduate outcome data from a debt to income ratio. So are our students earning a salary that allows them to pay the debt to the institution as well as you know meet their basic needs? For me, that's a metric of success, right? Um, looking at the data, our college outcome data from a disaggregated standpoint, um, and not just looking at students of color holistically, but looking at what are the experiences of our Black students, our Asian students, our Indigenous students, our multiracial students, our Latine students, um, and are there different disparities that need to be addressed and um, redesigned in the way that we are delivering our services? So um, that's just a high-level overview, but it really does come down to doing a, a full-on transformational overhaul of how we think about career services, not just as a department, but creating a system of career support um, across our college campus. And I know that feels daunting, right? I'm sure some people are listening. They're like, that sounds very overwhelming. Um, but, you know, the possibilities are there. And I think if we reframe it and think about how activating and inspiring it is when we see our students thriving, and when we know that we're making an impact towards equitable student outcomes, you know, it, it's what we're here to do and it's it's all worth it. And it can be fun if we, we do it in a way that builds community and is intentionally designed. Um, so there's the, either way, there's too much at stake. We can't wait. So <laughs> I hope folks will, will join us in continuing these conversations and doing the work. Very powerful. That's such an, an amazing note on which to end. And I was hoping that data and assessing was one of your your um, things in your acronym. And it was, because I was like, hmm, I think the only missing piece is that and you shared it. So I'm so happy that you mentioned that. And it appears to me that that data and assessment piece, that has to be ongoing. Like this shouldn't be something that's just done at the end of the year to see how well we've done. That has to be an ongoing, when we talk about monitoring and evaluating, we constantly have to be assessing how are we performing? Are we meeting our students? It has to be an ongoing self-assessment, internal assessment, departmental assess, department-wide assessment. And we have to also be hearing from students. Right. Sometimes we don't want to get that student feedback because we we're afraid of what that data might tell us. Sometimes we do like to just toot our own horn and say that we're doing well and take great pictures and things for social media. Sometimes we don't want that data that tells us that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, but that data is telling and helpful. And we can't really be serious about change and institutional change if we are um, when doing window dressing, in this, essentially. So I'm glad that that was one of the points you raised. And I love that you pointed out about a transformational overhaul. This might seem daunting. This might seem like a lot of work. But if we're in this for the right reasons, and if we truly want to serve students and understand that students have diverse needs, 
The reality is also that we apply similar models to other areas in academia and higher ed. Um, we do advise with these things in mind. We do other areas of mentorship with this framework in mind. Then it serves us to also look at career design intentionally, as you talked about. Um, so I love that we've ended on this note. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. And we often hear that, you know, one of the reasons why folks in academia and other sectors shy away from this issue is a lack of awareness or equity just seems like a complex topic. It just seems really complicated for any one person to take on or any one system. But as we have discussed today, we can no longer be comfortable with these positions and saying that this is too much for us to take on. If we are working in career services or if you are working with students or professionals, um, particularly young professionals or professionals with, from diverse backgrounds and experiences and races, we need to be doing the work. We need to be having these real conversations about identity in the workplace and when it comes to career design. Not just when they're about to graduate, these conversations need to be happening early on. And also a point that we may not have touched on today is being willing to hold employers accountable because we prepare our students so well. And I don't know that we remember that we also have to hold our employer partners as institutions specifically, hold them accountable and have those conversations. And if that might mean not working with an employer that um, is racist or is problematic or is not supportive of our mission, being willing to make those tough calls too. So I think we sometimes don't talk about the employer responsibility because that takes some guts to, you know, cut ties with an employer for an institution. So that might be for a follow-up podcast, but thank you so much, um, Dr. Haywood. This was amazing. Thank you for all of your knowledge. Dr. Haywood, we're preparing to wrap up for today, but before we go, where can folks find you and connect with you for more of this content? Absolutely. So I am on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. So you can search for me. I'm at Dr. Haley Haywood on LinkedIn, H-A-Y-L-E-Y, H-A-Y-W-O-O-D. Um, I'm also happy to connect with folks directly. You can reach me at Haley at elevating-access.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Haywood. And I look forward to us having more of these conversations and collaborating some more in the future. Thank you so much. 